Well, good evening. My name is Mark Huddleston, and it's lovely to see you all here on this uh, snowy night in December. Isn't it beautiful to have snow on the day of our, our carol service tonight? Well, unusually in a carol service, you may want to look up the Bibles in front of you. They're either in the seat in front of you uh, or at the end of your pews if you're up in the balcony. And we're on page 693 in Isaiah chapter 9. Page 693. Well, I wonder who's afraid of the dark? Who's afraid of the dark? Well, perhaps we should turn the lights out to find out. There was one occasion when I was very afraid of the dark. My wife, Sylvia, who is Spanish, and I were walking in the mountains close to a hometown in Spain, where there are many remote villages up there in the mountains. They're the kind of places where people don't ask where you're from. They ask, who are you related to? As usual, it set off a little bit late, but it would be okay because the trail was clearly marked with little white and yellow lines painted on the rocks every 25 meters or so. The route followed the mountain pass between the villages, along river valleys, across terraced fields dug deep into the, into the hillsides, which were planted with olive trees or fantastic vegetable patches. But it's beginning to get dark, and Sylvia began to get a bit worried as it became harder and harder to spot the trail markings along the way. There was no moon, and soon we were completely lost. We literally couldn't see our feet, let alone where we were treading in the darkness. So we resorted to walking in single file, hand in hand, carefully putting one foot in front of another. Sylvia was begging me to go back, but I'm a man, and man don't go, men don't go back for small things like no light. Or at least that's what I thought until the moment when I stepped off the side of a stone terrace, fell six feet and landed in some brambles. At that point, I decided Sylvia was probably right and that we should turn back. Darkness can be very frightening. And you probably think I was very foolish, and indeed, I probably was very foolish. But there was another reason why I didn't want to turn back that night. As we had left the previous village, we passed down this very narrow track. And it took us between the village cemetery on one side, with a big whitewashed wall around it and full of spooky graves, and on the other side was this fenced compound full of the most enormous, savage-looking dogs you have ever seen in your life. As we attempted to get past, the dogs were barking and jumping up at this flimsy six-foot wire fence that kept them in. We were only saved by a man from the village who came along and started lobbing raw meat at them over the top of the fence. Luckily, that distracted them just enough so we could get past. But now, in the dark, we could hear them barking. We could feel their breath. But we couldn't see whether any of them had jumped over that fence and were coming at us. But at least, if we did die, we'd be close to the cemetery. <laughs> and that illustration is a bit like the kingdom of Judah as we find it in the time of Isaiah. The last verse of chapter 8 in the Bible looks at, sums it up. You see, the people see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they, think they, they will be thrust into utter darkness. You see, they were living in terrible fear. They feared death, the sight of the cemetery, if you like. And they feared life itself because of the wild dogs like poverty, hunger, and invasion, invasion that were lying in wait for them. There appeared to be no hope. 
So what had gone so badly wrong? You see, long before King David had been promised an enduring kingdom, his throne would be established forever. But now, in the time of Isaiah, centuries later, we find David's kingdom divided into two and threatened by the Assyrian superpower over there in the east. The northern kingdom, Israel, had long since given up appointing kings chosen by God, and they had turned to their non-Jewish neighbors for support at the same time as bullying Judah into joining their rather dodgy alliance. The southern kingdom, Judah, was still ruled by a descendant of King David, King Ahaz. But King Ahaz had a bit of a problem. What should he do to save his kingdom? Well, going back a bit further in chapter 7, the prophet Isaiah went to see King Ahaz as King Ahaz inspected this aqueduct outside of Jerusalem, which was an essential part of the city defences. Isaiah told him in chapter 7, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. It's a bit like that World War II slogan that appears on posters, become very popular during the recession of the last couple of years. Keep calm and carry on, it says. Keep calm and carry on. Isaiah says, don't listen to the Israel, to Israel and their schemes. And don't be afraid of Assyria over there. Instead, Isaiah says, trust in God. And in chapter 7, verse 7, he says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. But King Ahaz proved to be a worthless king. He rejected Isaiah's advice. And while he didn't join Israel's unholy alliance, he came up with his own scheme. He decided to turn his back on God, to give up his sovereignty, and to pay protection money to the Assyrians. In the process, he plunged his people into poverty as the Assyrians demanded more and more. And eventually, the Assyrians broke all their pledges anyway, and King Ahaz was helpless as the Assyrian army flooded into Judah across the plains of Zebulun and Naphtali to the west of the River Jordan, north of the Sea of Galilee. They took the Judeans there into exile and replaced them with non-Jewish people loyal to Assyria, the conquerors. And that's why that area of the country became known as Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the non-Jews. You see, David's kingdom was supposed to be an example of justice and righteousness to all the other nations. But here it was, divided, defeated, and filled with non-Jewish people, each following their own faith and way of life. King Ahaz had turned his back on God and plunged his people into the most terrible darkness you can imagine. Verse 21 describes it. Distressed and hungry, the people roam through the land. When they are famished, they become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. The people were frightened. They were hungry. Not surprising, they were angry and they blamed their rulers, the kings who got them into this mess. But they also blamed God. The Bible says they turned to mediums and spiritists as they lived with no hope. They felt that they'd been thrust into this most complete, utter darkness. Well, I'm afraid that some of us here tonight may have turned our backs on God and may prefer to follow our own human schemes. And as a result of that, we're living in that same kind of darkness. And sometimes what's worse than being in the dark is the fear of what the things we cannot see in the dark, like my dogs jumping at the fence. 
And so many people experience a constant fear of death. Others may worry about the fear of illness or redundancy or the fear of climate change and how your grandchildren will live. Or you may be distressed by some terrible memories in your past or the shame of things you've done that won't go away. And perhaps some of, this tried, some of us try to deal with this, as the Judeans did, by blaming our rulers. It's all the government's fault, we say. They failed to regulate the banks. They can't get an agreement on climate change. They even let Terry Wogan retire from the breakfast program. I mean, whatever next? But some of us even blame God. And we say things like, God doesn't really care about us. How could a loving God allow so much suffering in the world? Why does God bless some people and not others? But it's here, into this darkness, that Isaiah steps once again to remind us that darkness is only one side of the story. And in chapter 9, Isaiah comes with two promises from God. The promise of a change from darkness to light and the promise of a child who will rule our lives in peace. So let's look at the first of these two promises in more detail. The promise of a change from darkness to light. You see, Isaiah 9 begins with one of the great Bible buts. Nevertheless, nevertheless, says Isaiah in verse 1, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, and Zebulun and Naphtali were the front line of the battles. They were the Normandy or the Helmand uh, province of their era. They have been devastated by this invasion that had taken place. But in the future, Isaiah says, God will honor this land, now known as Galilee of the Gentiles, or simply Galilee. Because this is precisely the place where God promises to reveal his great light. Reading on in verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. With all this uh, snow around today, it's easy to think of the perpetual winter in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's always winter in Narnia, but never Christmas. Actually, it would be quite nice to delay Christmas a little bit, because I'm nowhere near ready. I've got, if you think you've got it bad, I've got two children's birthdays to go through before Christmas. But in Narnia, it is always winter, and never Christmas. Unless Aslan, the lion, starts to move and begins to break the richest spell, which means that Father Christmas can get back into Narnia, bringing presents for the talking animals and the the children, and saying, Merry Christmas, long live the true king. But who is this true king who comes to melt the snow of Narnia and comes to melt our fears in the darkness? Well, it's spelled out for us in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 4. It's a reading we'll have read to us later on. You see John the Baptist had been out and about preaching and baptizing in Jordan. But in verse 12 of chapter 4 in Matthew, it says, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to, guess where? Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake, in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. And from verse 17, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. So you see, it all comes together. The honor promised to the region of Galilee, 730 years before by Isaiah, is none other than the arrival of the true king, 
whose name was Jesus. The king who begins his teaching ministry in Galilee, preaching about the kingdom of heaven and revealing the glory of God. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You see, God who created light back there in Genesis, by saying, let light shine out of darkness, says, let light shine again. But this time, let light shine in our hearts. And God says, this is how I reveal myself. My love, my sacrifice, my very being, And my glory, I reveal myself to the hearts of men and women. All is revealed in my son, Jesus Christ. So just as the cure uh, for jaundice in small babies is to put them under strong lights and give them some kind of suntan that I don't understand, the cure for our spiritual jaundice is to be exposed to the light of Jesus who reveals the glory of God and the kingdom of heaven. So what can we expect from this light? Well, Isaiah tells us in verses 3 to 7. Firstly, the distress of chapter 8 and the fear of the shadow of death in verse 2 will be turned into the joy of a growing nation, a plentiful harvest and the dividing of plunder in verse 3. So there is fear turned into joy. In verse 4, the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor will be shattered, turning them free. So there's oppression turned into freedom. And in verse 5, the boots used in battle and the garments which have been soaked in blood will be rolled up and used as fuel for the fire to provide warmth and heat for cooking. So there are terrible memories turned into comfort. Now perhaps you are frightened of death or you feel oppressed by some recurring sin or memory or addiction in your life, something you just can't seem to get rid of in any way. Or perhaps you have problems at work or in your relationships which just seem to be completely insurmountable. Or perhaps you're haunted by the shame of past mistakes that you've made which seem too terrible even to speak about or to bring to mind right now. Where you need to know that if the oppressor's rods can be shattered and blooded clothing can be turned into fuel for the fire, that even difficult situations and our past mistakes can be turned into blessing and renewed lives. God can heal these wounds and he can turn our fears into joy. Imagine our joy when Sylvia and I finally got past this cemetery and the dogs and we found a bar in the village to go and phone for a taxi. But as we walked into this bar, we immediately noticed it was something out like, like out of an old western. It was full of old men, either playing dominoes on the tables or drinking quietly at the bar. And as soon as we came through the door, they all turned around and stared at us. And yes, at that moment, I had to admit, yes, I am the strange foreigner that tried to walk through the valley in the middle of darkness. And that brings me to Isaiah's second promise, the promise of a child who will rule our lives in peace. Because sometimes we think we can solve our own problems. Sometimes we think, I am in control. I can find my own way in life. 
Or if we go wrong, I can turn myself back again. I can turn myself around and I can become a better person. But can we? You see, I believe that it's no coincidence that Jesus began to preach. He began his teaching ministry in the land of Galilee. He had been so humbled by the Assyrian invasion. Nor, I do believe, it's a coincidence that Jesus begins his first recorded sermon with these words. He says, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, as we approach the light of Jesus, we have to be humble, like the people of Zebulun and Naphtali. We have to admit that we cannot save ourselves. You see, notice in Isaiah chapter 9, there is no human fighting or striving. The battles that are talked about have been won. The victories have been fought. The only action that we see is seen by God. He is the one who honors Galilee by sending us his light. Only God can turn our fears into joy, our oppression into freedom, and our terrible memories into comfort. Verse 4 refers to the day of Midian's defeat. Do you remember that strange story from Judges 6 and 7? Midian's army was so large that when you looked at it from another hillside, the soldiers were as thick as locusts covering the whole hill. Their camels could no more be counted than the grains of sand. But Gideon had 32,000 men. Surely with such a large army, Gideon could defeat anybody. But God said to Gideon, no, You have too many men. So Gideon sent 22,000 men home, and only 10,000 people remained. And God said, no, you still have too many men. Take them down to the spring and let them drink. If they lap the water with their tongues like a dog, keep them. If they kneel down in a more refined manner, then send them home. Well, only 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths. And God said, now, Gideon, Now your army is small enough. With these 300 men, I will save you. You see, Gideon was never going to win by the strength of his army or by the brilliance of his strategic planning or by being simply good enough. He was going to win because God was going to win this battle for him. And this is the same God who can still turn our fears into joy today. And he doesn't do it with an army. He doesn't even do it with 300 men helping him. He does it by sending us a child. And none of our fears, not even the fear of death itself, stand a chance against this one small child. Because the child is God's own dear son. He is the wonderful counsellor. He is the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of his government and peace there will be no end. Here is the miracle of Christmas. God himself comes to earth as a baby. And as a tiny human child, God can achieve what we can never achieve on our own. We need to be humble and admit that we cannot save ourselves. We need to repent and put our faith in Jesus rather than following our own human schemes. Only God can turn our fears into joy. And God does it with all of his love, with all of his passion, and with all of his might. 
as Isaiah says in the phrase that is easily forgotten on the turn of the page, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Not your zeal, nor my zeal, but the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And he does it through the birth of a baby, through the birth of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Father, we praise you for the gift of your own dear Son, Jesus. We praise you that you sent him to this world to save us from our sins and to save us from the shame and the memories of our past. We thank you, Lord, that we can live this life free from fear if we put our trust in you. Help us, Lord, to be humble and to accept you and accept your glory, to accept your light into our hearts. Amen.